0: Uh, There are two readings this morning. Uh, The first is Psalm 32, which will appear on the screens. Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them, and in whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. You are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my loving eye on you. Do not be like the horse or the mule which have no understanding, but must be controlled by bit and bridle, or they will not come to you. Many are the woes of the wicked, but the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the one who trusts in him. Rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous. Sing, all you upright in heart. And the second reading uh, is taken from uh, Matthew, chapter 5, verses 1 to 4. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Good morning. A lot of faces I haven't seen before this year so far, so let me say Happy New Year to you, Uh, and great that you are here. And to anyone watching online, I can't say great that you're not here, but great that you're with us online at least. Let's pray together that God would speak to us from the Scriptures. Father God, thank you for the Scriptures, and thank you for your promise that the unfolding of your Word brings light. And so we pray that you would fill us with your light and your truth today. And I ask your help as I speak to speak faithfully. And I pray that you would anoint my words, that they might be powerful in leading us to Jesus. We pray together in his name. Amen. We're beginning the year by a close study of what are known as the Beatitudes the statements that Jesus makes at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, which all begin with the words, blessed are, blessed are. And you can view these statements, and and I do really, as a progression describing the kind of life that God can bless. The kind of life that God can bless. And last week I suggested a, a picture that we could view them as rungs on a ladder And today, I've got a different picture for us. Leave the ladder behind for a moment. And let's imagine that we're going on a journey to a gym. Well, I have to use my imagination because uh, kind of spoiler alert, I haven't actually been to a gym for years. In fact, they've rebranded gyms. They're not called gyms anymore, are they? They're called something much more optimistic, something like fitness centers. So I thought I need to find out a bit more about them. So I googled what kind of equipment do you find in a gym? Things like this. None of them to my mind sound very enticing. Cardio climber. Ouch. Glute trainer. Intimidating. Electric treadmill. Don't like the sound of that. And then I came across a piece of equipment that I thought, well, at least I own one of those. A stationary bicycle. <laughs> well, Well, you can think of these statements of Jesus, these Beatitudes, you can think of them as equipment that will make you spiritually fit. And if we do, I would suggest that this next piece of equipment in that guided tour around the imaginary fitness centre, it would be the equivalent of me looking up and saying to my guide, but hang on a minute, over in that corner I can see you've got this kind of dust sheet and it looks as if no one's moved it for years what, what's that hiding and uh, the staff member would say to me well I, I, I just don't know I, it's just one of those things it's been sitting there for a very very long time and um, I'm told that back in the day it was a very very popular piece of kit that people really valued it and it helped people to get fit but today no one's asked for it for years and To be frank, when I did remove the cover some time ago when I first joined this outfit, I hadn't a clue what to do with it. So I just put the cover back on, and there it's been sitting. And I think that's like this second beatitude, that uh, most of us choose just to leave it where it is, cover it with a dust sheet, and forget about it. But we can't do that, because if Jesus is, and I believe he is, leading us to the life that could be blessed, we've got to try and get under the skin, of what each of these sentences mean. So let me read it to you. Blessed are those that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Not a long sentence. Blessed are those that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now every commentator that I've read quickly agrees that this is an unexpected sentence and it's paradoxical. And John Stott says it could almost be translated, un, are they Unhappy. How can that possibly be? Happy are the unhappy. And three plausible meanings are suggested. Fortunately, it's blindingly obvious when you really think about it, which of the three we should major in on. But just so that we can clear away confusion, let me deal with each of them fast. I I guess that the most obvious meaning that springs to most of our minds immediately and just leaves us scratching our head and really thinking, oh, let's dump this, I just don't get. The most obvious meaning is, blessed are those who are mourning the death of someone, they'll be comforted. And and common sense says to us, well, what a strange thing to say, and what's that doing in, in the beginning of a sermon? And actually, every single commentator that I've come across, when consulted, says this interpretation is just wrong. It's not that God doesn't bring comfort to those who are grieving. He does. But that isn't the thrust of what Jesus is talking about here. We'll see what he is talking about in just a second. The second conceivable meaning is this. Blessed are those who mourn the state the world's in because they'll be comforted. And again, this is true up to a point. But it's not, again, the thrust of what's really being said here. So let's major on the third the third possibility and see why this is the most straightforward, clear, logical and helpful meaning for us to get under in our heads. Remember that the first statement Jesus said was blessed are those who are poor in spirit, blessed are those who, who know how powerless they are in God's company, who know that they are broken and live in a broken world. And this second statement rides on the back of that. It's a follow-up of that. Blessed are those who mourn their spiritual state. Blessed are those who, who grieve over it, who can see that they're poor in spirit and want to do something about it. You mourn your situation and condition. John Sott pithily says, it's one thing to acknowledge our spiritual situation, it's another thing to grieve and mourn over it. Or to use spiritual language, he says, it's one thing to confess our shortcomings. It's another to be contrite about them. And I think we've mistakenly thrown a blanket over this beatitude and tried to shove it in the corner. And my purpose this morning is to uncover it and bring it back into the mainstream. And I think actually the title of this talk, for once, and I'm the one who writes the titles, actually does bear relevance to what the talk's got to say. The mourning after the night before would be a good summary of this beatitude. The mourning, the grieving that we have after the night before, when we reflect on the way we're doing life. And I would motivate us by saying this. Since Jesus sees fit to highlight the need to mourn our brokenness, we have no right to airbrush it out of our spiritual equipment. But let's attack this from an angle which is very realistic. Why is it so difficult? Why is it so difficult even to get near this territory? And why do we struggle so hard? And, And I think I can offer a number of explanations. To use contemporary jargon, I think we prefer alternative facts and fake news. We prefer to find a different interpretation for the condition that we all inhabit and what's going on in the world. And knowing in my mind where this sermon was heading and realising that it's quite challenging for all of us, I assure you it's difficult for me to deliver as it is for you to hear, I thought I needed to motivate us with a very obvious question, which is this. When you go to a doctor, do you go to the doctor in the hope that they will speak to you good news and you can leave feeling good? Or do you go in the hope and expectation they will speak truth to you, however that makes you feel, so that you can be made good? I mean, obviously, we'd prefer that it was good news and it was the truth, but generally, you only go to the doctor when you're not feeling well. When we go to the scriptures for truth about us and our condition, initially, what it has to say does not come across as good news at all. Now, if you don't like what the doctor says, you can go for a second opinion to another doctor. And if you don't like what they say, you can go to a third opinion, and so on and so forth. If you don't like what one book of scripture says, you can go to another, and another, and another. But I'm going to save you a lot of time by telling you the message is consistent, whichever of the of books you turn to. And here is the diagnosis over every single one of us we are suffering from a condition. It's a disease. And it's evidence in dis-ease. Now today, sadly for all of us, if I describe it like a spiritual virus, you know far too much about what I mean. But it is like a spiritual virus. And it's very deceptive. It's very deceptive. It's asymptomatic for a start. You can be afflicted with this virus and not be aware that you have it, and you can spread it and not be aware that you have it. And it's deadly, and it kills. And the more expert you become in this condition, the more alarmed you get by it. But most of us actually flinch from lifting the lid and looking into it too much. And it really is hard to spot because everybody's got it. And if everyone's got a a, a disease, the same disease, you kind of think, well, that must be normal. Imagine that that everybody in in this country died at the age of 25. Everyone or around there, and they never lived beyond 30. We could start thinking to ourselves, well, that must be normal. And the only way we'd break out of that would be if somebody lived, say, to 50, 60, 70, and we had a different standard to compare things to depressed yet. It's quite hardcore, this stuff. But this is what's been described in scripture. And of course, you know, you've guessed, the summary word, the technical word for this disease is sin. I don't like using that word because we so often misunderstand it. So I'm describing the condition without using the word. But there's even more reasons why we bulk from accepting this diagnosis. And it is that in this virus's genetic composition is a remarkable ability to disguise itself and to actually even confuse our thinking. So it's like we're so contaminated, we, we, we hardly know where to begin when describing what, what's going on. You can't tell by how you feel that you're suffering from this. So here's the chink, here's a bit that's going to open the way to good news and make this not depressing, but something we're profoundly grateful for, is this virus can be forced to show up. There is an equivalent to a lateral flow test or a PCR test. And instead of applying, instead of applying kind of liquid into a test or taking a blood sample or something, it's the Holy Spirit that you invite into your life. You, you and I have not got a chance of recognizing our own condition unless we ask the Holy Spirit's help. And then the gold standard of help is this. With the Holy Spirit's help, you ask yourself, So, how is my life matching up to what God wants out of my life? It's a simple question. Holy Spirit, show me, just show me, how is my life? matching up to God's perfect standard. Examine yourself in the light of God's light. Now, I I know this territory I'm I'm heading into and standing in, stomping in, really. It, It is heavy duty. It's not fun, is it? It is like being told by a doctor that you've got something seriously, seriously wrong with you. And most people go into denial at this point. And I've had this conversation up and down the country over many, many, many years. Sometimes after preaching a talk like this, someone will come up and they say, look, Rupert, you say that we've all got this disease. Surely that's a bit overblown. You say, we've all sinned. I haven't, they say. And and just once or twice in my life, only once or twice, um, I've invited people. I remember being on a house party, talking to about 40, 50 people, and They said, you know, I haven't sinned. So I said, well, would you like to meet me this afternoon? I'm free, anytime you want this afternoon. And we can go through the Ten Commandments together, and I'd like to show you that you've broken all ten. they looked a bit shocked. And I I, I knew what they were thinking. They were thinking, I haven't committed adultery. I think they even said that. And I said, well, I'm glad to hear you haven't. But if you read this sermon a bit more, Jesus says that if you've even looked at someone lustfully, you're as good as... So we're going to count that one in. You've broken it, and, and you know you can actually, if you're mean enough, you can do this to all ten. You can find you have not got a leg to stand on. And, and why does this matter? Because I think this is another area that preachers can go on and on as if this is the most important thing in the world. And and actually, Joe Bloggs is listening, thinking, so what? So what? Why does it matter? because one day you and I are going to stand in front of God, and he's going to call us to account of the kind of life we lived. That's the negative side of why it matters. On the positive side of why it matters is because God's got a better life for you and me to live. And we won't experience it until we ask his help and start leaving this stuff behind and beginning walking a new life. This is a life God can bless. I want you to hear this talk, not through a voice of condemnation and Jesus standing over you saying, no, 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 because that's not it. He, it's Look, get away from that life that traps you and let me lead you into a life of, of relating to me, enjoying my love, changing the world in the direction I want it to go. But to do that, you've got to get to a place where you grieve and mourn over the way that you behave. And it, it won't do just to airbrush this problem and think that sin and rebellion doesn't matter because scripture tells me page after page it does. Well, I've already told you plenty about this, and and alongside in this virus is this incredible potential to deceive ourselves. Just remarkable. That's why I remember back in the days when I used to work in the insurance world, I was told by the people who dealt with claims in the motor department that according to the descriptions of the claims that they got sent into them, most accidents happened between two stationary vehicles because nobody wanted to admit that uh, it was their vehicle moving at the time when the collision happened. And then again, an excuse people use is this. They, they add an 11th commandment, and they think it's terribly funny because it is, in a way. and Thou shalt not be found out. And you know, just keep going. You pretend it'll all be all right. Uh, but I just need to break it to you. You will be found out. There is absolutely nothing secret. Uh, nothing secret before the eyes of God. Conan Doyle, apparently, I've never been able to run this story to actually verify it, but apparently he had a mischievous sense of humour. And he wrote to three or four of his best friends in a telegram, and he just said, um, flee the country, all is about to be revealed. And all of them did. Which is, you know, there are many, many ways of explaining that we have all rebelled against God. You know, if you find that Ten Commandments example a bit bit too heavy, a bit too technical, you know, here's a much easier example. You know? If we could put on the overhead, if we could put on the overhead, a, a little video of everything you've been thinking in the last 24 hours, everything that you've done and how you've been behaving, and you'd be the first out of church, because all of us have done things that actually we're ashamed of, and we've not done things that we wish we had done. What the Holy Spirit wants to do is, A, to disclose to us where we've derailed, but, B, to get us to a place where God can forgive us and recommission us, and we can start again. And generally, how this happens in scripture and how it happens in life actually is not through someone standing at the front belting you with a diagnosis of your condition. It generally happens much more as we encounter what God is really like, his perfection, his loving kindness, his holiness. As God draws close to you and me, It's then in appreciation of what he's like that we come to think, my goodness, there's a gap between you and me. And that's exactly what's described time and again in scripture, isn't it? You think of Peter, the apostle, on that fishing trip. You know, when he caught so many fish, he just looked at Jesus and said to him, now depart from me, Lord, because I'm a sinful man. There's the world of difference between you and me. Or Isaiah when he is worshipping in a temple and he has his vision of the presence of God and he says, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. Woe is me because I'm, I'm just so scuzzy compared to what I've just encountered. And I think this is what God does actually for us, to us, in us, as we encounter Jesus. I, I can remember this friend saying to me when I was 20 years old, she was a committed Christian. I was so far from being a Christian and she challenged me to read John's Gospel. And I just so clearly remember, by the end of reading this account of Jesus' life, being haunted by being unable to give an answer to the question which I was asking myself, Rupert, what are you going to say to God when he says, what do you make of the death of my son? And actually, it was a long churning process, but what was going on in me was what you could call conviction of sin. It was a realization. The way you're doing life, your friends might think it's great, your parents might think it's great, you're living up to all their standards, but my goodness, compared to this life you're seeing in Jesus, you haven't even asked God what he wants to be up to in your life. You and he are walking in completely different directions. Are you going to do something about that? And that's what's at the heart of this beatitude, I don't have many quotes of D.H. Lawrence in my quotes index. In fact, I think this is the only one. But he wrote somewhere, if only we could live two lives, the first in which to make one's mistakes, and the second in which to profit by them. And as a Christian, I want to say you can. You can, because that's what happens actually when God starts speaking into your life and my life. All of us realize we we've set off in the wrong direction. That's what a Christian is, is someone who's gone to God and said, I'm really, really sorry. I mourn the way I've left you out of my life. And I need you to help. And a technical word for this, it's an absolutely key word for this process of starting a new life, this time with God in charge, is the word repentance. And of course, that's such a dated word. Repentance and sin, they just sound so old school but if you can get over the word and get into what it means is start a new life or modern phrase, get a life. And you can't get to enjoy life in the kingdom of God if you don't go through that gateway of get a life, repentance. And that's why, whether it's in fashion or not, that's why in the scriptures, you will find Jesus begins his ministry. The time has come, the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. It was first up in what he said. That's why Peter, preaching in the book of Acts, will say, repent and turn to God so your sins can be wiped out and times of refreshing can come. That's why the Spirit will say repeatedly so often in the book of Revelation, so be earnest and repent. It is the gateway to all good things. And now you can see I'm beginning to get into the territory which is not just the the bad news of blessed are those who mourn, but they will be comforted but the measure that you and I will be comforted will be in direct proportion to our ability to, to speak the truth in confession. It, it's like we will only be healed as much as we acknowledge the disease. I, I read a little time ago of a true event that took place in the state of Kansas in the States. And before there uh, State legislature got together before they met as a kind of local government. They they just normally asked the local priest to to mumble a prayer or two. And on this particular occasion, the priest was absent, and he asked a friend of his to deputise. So none of those people in that local parliament were expecting much to go on. They just expected uh, a mumble of a prayer, and this is what. The priest, a guy called Joe Wright, prayed. Heavenly Father, we come before you today to ask your forgiveness and to seek your direction and guidance. Lord, we know your word says, woe to those who call evil good. But that's exactly what we've done. We confess we've ridiculed the absolute truth of your word and we call it moral pluralism. We've worshipped other gods and called it multiculturalism. We've endorsed perversion and call it alternative lifestyle. We've exploited the poor and called it the lottery. We've neglected the needy and call it self-preservation. We've killed our unborn and called it choice. We've neglected to discipline our children and call it building esteem. We've abused power and called it political savvy. We've coveted our neighbours' possessions and called it ambition. We've polluted the air with profanity and pornography and we call it freedom of expression. Search our hearts, O oh God. And know our hearts today. Try us and see if there's some wicked way in us. Cleanse us from every sin and set us free. Well, his office stopped taking phone calls or recording phone calls after 6,500. Uh, one of the other, other people in the, in the parliament that day said, he can't talk like that about us. Well... <laughs> That's exactly uh, what he needed to do. It may have shocked them, but that is, that is exactly the honesty. It's not pleasant to read, but it's the honesty that needs to be a transaction between us and God if we're going to benefit from a life that's blessed. And in the scriptures, we find that this aspect of mourning does actually go from the individual to not just mourning their own spiritual state, but sometimes it overspills in mourning and confessing the state of the nation in which they live too. And of course, it's not done, when it's done from the heart, it's not done in a holier-than-thou kind of way. It's much more done by entering the pit and saying, I'm part of a problem as well. And we get examples of this, for example, Jesus, when he wept over Lazarus he wasn't weeping because Lazarus was dead because he was about to raise Lazarus to life and he knew that he was weeping over seeing so clearly the damage that sin does which ultimately ends in death when he wept over Jerusalem he wasn't weeping because the cross awaited him he was weeping because Jerusalem was so hard-hearted that people wouldn't come to him and receive his love or if you read the book of Philippians carefully, you will find that Paul weeps, he says, even through tears, that he weeps for those who are enemies of the cross of Christ. He is, he, he is just unable to be indifferent to the suffering and spiritual condition. Or I think of Nehemiah at the very, very beginning of the book of Nehemiah, when he asks his brother who, who meets him on a journey, Remember Nehemiah Nehemiah's miles away from Jerusalem, he says, how goes it with the people back home? And he's told those who have survived the exile are back and they're in great trouble and disgrace. The walls of Jerusalem have broken down and the gates have been burnt with fire. And what's he do? He says, when I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. And I'm sure that, you know, like me, from time to time, you've read the newspapers, you've looked in and seen what's going on and you think to yourself, it's enough to make you weep. And it's certainly enough to make God weep. And occasionally, he will have you in prayer weeping over what's going on and mourning, mourning over the condition of what's going on. But there's no shortcut. Sadly, there is no shortcut to this process. Joy comes in the morning, but weeping is part of the deal in the sense that we have to admit the guilt. We have to admit our part of it. If you want examples of this, and it is actually wonderfully helpful to turn in Scripture to find examples of this, you can find three model prayers like this, and they're easy to remember because they're a 999 call to God, and they're Ezra chapter 9, Nehemiah chapter 9, and Daniel chapter 9. And just in the privacy of your own time in your own house, you can slowly read those prayers, and you'll quickly catch the drift of what's going on. And you could ask God, you know, I would love to be taught by you how to pray in such a way that it has integrity and authenticity and we could see your kingdom come. This is the road towards the comfort God wants to give you and me. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Let, let's just hone into this just for a bit so that this is You get it. This isn't a gloomy sermon. This is a sermon of truth bringing joy. From time to time, um, you will read in the newspapers, I'm sure, obituaries of very famous barristers. And there have been barristers who, to have them on your case, was almost like to give you an unfair advantage. They, They were just so skilled in what they were up to. I love the phrase that is used of Jesus in 1 John chapter two, where he's talked about as our advocate or our defending barrister. John has said in the first um, part of his letter that if, if we tell ourselves we've not sinned, then we're deceiving ourselves. And I've taught you about that in the first five minutes of his talk. But he says, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate, we have a defending barrister. With the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. How does this work in practice? It works very simply like this. When I stand before the judgment seat of God, both when I meet him face to face at the end of my life, but even today, Jesus speaks in my defense. He says, I've cleansed Rupert. I've forgiven Rupert. There's no condemnation now for Rupert because he has accepted that I died in his place. He he has confessed his sins. He's grabbed the mercy I have for him. And so he appears before you white as snow. And God can comfort me with that news. In the psalm that we had read, it was exactly the same pattern. David was saying, I, I've confessed my sins now, Lord. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Create in me a pure heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Don't cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Friends, this is the way forward. It's the second rung of a ladder. Throw yourself at the mercy of the Lord and receive the loving kindness that he has. And the extent that we do this will determine how much we are able to praise his name. I don't want to talk about this in every sermon that I ever preach. But you know what? I am profoundly more grateful to be alive after having been in intensive care on a ventilator and out of it for five days. Pretty much um, not a week goes by when I don't just uh, open my eyes and say, Lord, I'm just so grateful to be alive. Because I know what it's like to have been in the balance. Much better than I ever did before. I was freed from, you know, pretty grotty sickness. Christians who have spent time letting the Holy Spirit impress upon them quite how grimy and bust up they were in doing life, and have understood quite how great God's mercy is, we praise the Lord with far greater vigor, because we understand it. And my prayer would be for us, for all of God's people in his kingdom, that we would be uninhibited and unashamed to praise God with an open heart now that we know how good he is. It would be criminal to suppress it and push it down or go week by week by week and just grow blase about it. We will never get over the gratitude we had to God. In, in heaven, they sing about this the whole time. And it's not because God needs us to be doing it. It's because our gratitude is that deep, so big, so broad, so high and wide. How can we not praise him for his mercy and the comfort that he gives? Yes? Well, I think so. <laughs> let, let me pray, and then we're going to sing a, a hymn together. And I think this hymn, the words of it, uh, express something of what I've been trying to talk about. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the scriptures. Thank you that they speak truth to us. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you minister truth to us and release it in our hearts and minds. And we come to you, Lord. Perhaps we need just to come to you and stop and examine ourselves, give you a chance to show us the areas of our life that uh, we've been kidding ourselves about. Perhaps we need to stop and say, Holy Spirit, examine us. Show us the bits that are dark. Show us the bits that do you no credit. Show us the bits that are in rebellion and we've chosen just to smother. And We pray that you would get through to us and convict us that we might come to you for forgiveness and mercy that we might come clean with you. And you would take us through this process that we not just understand how broken we are, we don't just regret it, we confess it. And lead us to a stronger place of living in the
0: shadow of your wings. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.